the most important discussion we can have in our, uh, in our uh, discussion regarding uh, core beliefs, and that's the discussion of God. And just very quickly, what we said last week um, is that obviously it's the most central uh, tenet of Judaism. It's the most central tenet, in fact, of all religions. Uh, and it's, uh, as we mentioned, it's the core mitzvah. It's the one mitzvah that affects all mitzvahs. As we mentioned last week, that at Mount Sinai, God himself delivers two of the Ten Commandments because those two, the positive and the negative of faith in God and rejection of idolatry, that really covers everything. Uh, but there's a problem. And the problem is that, um, by definition, the Jewish definition of God precludes us from actually conceptualizing that idea. So, by definition, we're saying that God is something that we cannot possibly understand. So that presents a problem in our current discussion of theology, of, of, of what, is it, what, is God, what does God, what do you mean? What is, it, you know, what is the, uh, the entity referred to? It presents a problem, because we can't actually describe it itself. We have to kind of work around it. So the, the position that is taken by all the great um, uh, philosophers and uh, codifiers of Judaism is that we define God. We give a definition, and even though that, defi- defi- that definition may indeed include the words, oh, you won't understand what that even means, we can't possibly grasp an entity that exists outside of time, outside of space, not bound by the same rules that we live in, but that's still a definition. So that's how we're going to work with it. Last week we talked about <clears throat> uh, some of the definitions, like Maimonides starts off by saying that God is the cause of all entities, uh, nothing can exist outside of God, and God exists outside of everything else. Uh, no parts, not a body, uh, beyond time and space. So I want to just quickly wrap up the definitions and then get into a little bit of the meaning behind, like, so what does this mean? So once we establish the definition of God, what does that mean? And of course we'll continue uh, discussing uh, other ancillary aspects of God, uh, most notably, like, well, how do we know it's true? What's the process that Abraham used to, uh, to deduce that? And obviously, what are the implications of this idea? So I want to start off with, uh, with number five of our definitions that we get from Maimonides. And he says like this. He says that only God is worthy of our loyalty and servitude. We don't believe in according honor to intermediaries. We don't pray to angels. Even Moses, the greatest man that ever lived, the most transformative entity of all time, right? because angels can change, remember? Only humans can change. He changed the most. Even Moses, you look at the way the Jewish people treat him and the way the Torah treats him. Moses, if you just read the Torah, you didn't know anything, and you ask the, ask the question, who's the villain? Who is criticized in the Torah more than anyone else? The answer is Moses. Why? Because that's the way we roll. <laughs> right? Moses is a mortal human, and we underscore that again and again, despite the fact he's the greatest man that ever lived. But he's still the greatest man. And we don't believe in any crossover between uh, uh, you know, man into any other realms. And that's why, uh, obviously, Christianity is anathema to Judaism. Because they are taking the idea of God or the, or the realm of the divine and they are uh, lowering it down to what we can see and encounter, right? Humanity. Uh, and by the way, I'll say another point. The, uh, the uh, history, the nascent history of, 
uh, of idolatry was based on this fundamental flaw. How did idolatry get started? Right? Adam, right? Obviously, you know, he had his issues, but he still believed in God, right? So what happened? What's the history? So Maimonides tells us, you know what happened? Is that people made a calculation. They made a very good argument. And they said, hey, God created these tremendous uh, luminaries in the sky, the constellations, the sun, the stars, the planets. And clearly, like, they're so dominant and they're so important in his plan. He would like it if we would also honor them as well as a proxy to honor God. That's how it began. And the idea being, well, you honor the sun, and that, um, by proxy, is going to honor God, because that's what he would want. And, of course, we know that how that, uh, how that uh, eventually spun out of control, and people forgot about God, and they just were honoring the sun, the stars, and eventually even uh, animate figurines that you put in the corner of the room. Um, so one of the core uh, essential aspects of our definition of God is that he alone, or even more precisely, it alone, uh, is worthy of our, uh, of our honor, of our, of our not, honor, not necessarily honor, but loyalty and servitude. We don't believe in serving and worshiping. By the way, uh, there has been a tradition from time immemorial in the Jewish people to go visit the graves of our uh, great, uh, our great uh, predecessors. We know there's a, the Jewish people, when they were being kicked out of Israel, so they're sent on the way to Babylon, and they stop off at the grave site of Rachel, Cave of Rachel, and they pray there. And we have in the Midrash that Rachel's interceding on behalf of the Jewish people, saying, hey, you, God shouldn't have any less mercy than I had. Why? Because when, uh, when, when, when Rachel was going to get married to Jacob and then Leah uh, was instead uh, put up as a replacement, so Rachel gave the signs, the secret signs to her sister so she shouldn't be embarrassed. Says Rachel to God, hey, listen, I had mercy on my sister. You, God, can have any less mercy. Right? So she kind of caused God uh, to have mercy of the Jewish people. But even though we go, so that's, that, that's obviously ancient, we're talking about 2,800 years ago or something, 2,500 years ago, uh, this episode of the Jewish people stopping on the way to Babylon and praying by a gravesite. Even when you go to a gravesite to pray, you're not praying to the dead cadaver inside. Of course not. What you're doing is you're praying to God that God help you in merit of the great person that you pray. So you go to Israel today and you go to Hebron, which is it's a little bit uh, chaotic. But, yeah, it always was. Uh, and you go to pray at the Ma'arat HaMachpelah. We read this week in the Parsha, right? Abraham buys the, the cave, and here he, you know, he buries Sarah, and eventually he himself is buried there, Jacob, uh, and, and his wife, and Isaac, his second wife, that is Leah, uh, and Isaac and Rebecca are buried there. You go at any time of day and night, right? literally from 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 7 p.m., whatever, any time of day or night, there's always a couple hundred Jews there praying we always pray at gravesite. We're not praying to Abraham. We're not praying to Isaac. We're not praying to Jacob or to the wives or anything like that. We're praying to God on behalf, uh, or not behalf, or in the merit of, of those, uh, those uh, tzaditim that are buried there. Okay. Next realm here. Definitely, we're going to try to do this quickly because I have a lot to talk about today here. Number six is that God knows what's going on. Right? This is actually a verse that God, when he's talking about this on on, on the holidays, Yodea Machshavot. God is aware. God knows every action that we do, every thought that we have, every utterance that we speak. 
And that's a prelude to number seven, that God cares. God, it matters to God, which seems a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, you know, why, did, why, does it, why should it matter to God? Because remember, God's status does not change no matter what we do. We can pray to God, his status doesn't change. We do mitzvahs, we listen to God, his status doesn't change. The reason why we do mitzvahs when we pray is for us, not for him. Yet, he tears. Now, how do we know he tears? Well, because if he didn't care, there would be no meaning, right? We only have meaning in our lives. There's only purpose in our lives because our actions, our thoughts, our words matter. They matter because God wants them to matter. So essentially, I'll tell you like this. Why do we have reward and punishment? Because our actions matter. Now, ironically, our capacity for reward and punishment is actually what gives life purpose. So you say, hey, Rabbi, punishment. Who wants punishment? Yeah, but punishment, you're, you're right. We don't want punishment. But punishment is a direct result of the fact that it matters what we do. Our lives have meaning. We're not just random atoms flying around, just bouncing off each other. That's not what we are. Our life has consequences. Our actions are important. Otherwise, our lives would be inconsequential. We would have no meaning. So God gives us free will, thus we have, uh, and he knows what's happening, thus there's, there's, there's reward and punishment, and our life matters. Uh, the word that we use um, to describe this idea is called hashtacha pratit. You ever heard those terms? Which means individual providence or supervision. It means that God is involved with us. By the way, that day of prayer, right? why do we pray? Why do we pray? Because our prayer matters. Because we're able to affect what God takes into consideration what we say. Think about that. It's not just the Almighty running the show. We too have a say. Now, that sounds sacrilegious, or a rabbi. It's not just the Almighty running the show. Is that what you're talking Yes, that's what I'm saying. Right? Obviously, otherwise, our prayer means nothing. Our prayer has power because God partners with us in determining what happens in the world. So it's possible for someone to pray and change what would have, not, what would have, what would have otherwise happened. That's because our actions matter. Now, obviously, we don't necessarily think on these terms, but if you do the mathematics, hey, listen, what, we're praying. Why are we praying? Because our prayer matters. Well, why does our prayer matter? Because God takes into consideration what we do. Right? He is involved with us on an individual level. All that is part of the definition we give to God. And lastly, I think this is probably the one that we are uh, most aware of when we think of God, is that God's able. There's no limitations. There's, no, you know, there's nothing that God cannot do. Remember, if God is the one who makes the limitations for this world... He's the one who gives us these limitations in our mind that we can't conceptualize uh, ideas beyond uh, the realm of what we would consider to be within the, the rules of physics. He makes those rules, but he's not bound by those rules. So he's able to do whatever he wants. No limitations. Uh, now, uh, this particular idea is fodder for amateur uh, theologians or aspiring philosophers to ask naughty questions. So, Rabbi, you're telling me that God is not bound by any limitations. Well, okay. 
can God create a rock that he cannot lift? Mm, gotcha, right? That's the, a question that uh, is very common. Uh, I don't think it's as common in the South as it is in the Northeast. It's a very common question. Well, uh, can God do X that he cannot X? Right? Can he make a rock that he cannot lift? Rock so heavy that even God can't lift it. Right? That, that, that's a common question, but it, but it, it really is a silly question. Because remember, God cannot limit himself. Right? God's not static. I'm sorry, God's not dynamic. God is static. God cannot change. Thus, God cannot limit himself. So indeed, God cannot do something that limits himself. It's not possible. That, that's an impossibility. So, that's what, so this is very dry. This is definitions. And you ask the question, you know, what does that mean for us? Where does our faith play a part? We have the definitions. Great. We believe. Fantastic. What does that mean? What does it mean that we know in our heads and we can prove it? We'll talk about that a little bit later. What does it mean that we're able to describe, you know, in very crude and dry terms what, is, what we mean when we even say? What does that mean for us? Where does faith, where is the word emunah? Have you heard of the word emunah? What does emunah mean? Emunah means faith that we do. Right? Having definitions of God is not emunah. It's not faith. It's understanding God. It's theoretical faith, perhaps. The real faith is practical faith. Now, what does it mean, practical faith? If someone behaves in a way that's different than they would have behaved had God not existed, that's emunah. Emunah means for someone to act, to behave in a way that's different than they would have behaved had God not been part of the picture. That's emunah. We're, our life, our actions, our thoughts, our behaviors are governed by this principle. That's emunah. So give us an example. If someone puts on a tie and shaves and puts on and takes a shower and puts on some uh, cologne and coifs is he really nice and rehearses his lines before he speaks to the president, but when he goes into synagogue, he looks like he just came out of a, I don't know, like of a war zone and is not totally you know disorganized, disheveled. Well, then clearly he believes that the president has more power than God. Because otherwise, why would he be, logically you wouldn't behave, right? It doesn't make any sense. If you really believe that God has all the power, everything is dependent on God, and God's not dependent on anything, well, then the only entity that really deserves our trepidation and preparation should be God. The president, what's the president? He can't really change your status. Only God can, right? We pray to God, not to the president. So why, if anyone in this room, and I'm saying, I I think it's true. Most of us, you know, we don't pray, we pray, and it's, you know, maybe sometimes we have kavanah, we have a concentration, sometimes not. But if we knew that that we had an appointment with the president for 15 minutes, you know, in a week from now, that would dominate our minds. We have an appointment with with God, king king of all all kings. Remember, God is not bound by term limits, you know. God doesn't have no, no checks and balances. That's the God that we're able to encounter with and talk to and engage with and make requests. And this is the God who has all the power. Yet, we don't take it as seriously. Why not? Because there's a lack, not of the theoretical intellectual faith 
Not because we don't know definitions. We know the definitions. And we believe the definitions. But we don't have a munah. And there's a vast chasm between what we know in our heads and what we believe and we check the, check the box. I believe. I have faith. I believe. That is radically different than having a munah. Emunah means it's real. It really dominates my life. I need you as an example here, just to demonstrate how, how, the, how this difference uh, could be uh, uh, portrayed. You have uh, two kids. Both of them know that if you that if you don't touch the fire, fire is really hot. One of them is a smart aleck. So he says, I'm going to put my finger in. And I have a whole bunch of those in my house. <laughs> so he sticks his finger in. He's like, eh, well, you know. They both know fire is hot. Both kids. But the kid who actually stuck his finger in the fire and has a burn and has a scar for life and could sense, he, he, he feels, you know, what it's like, the heat and how it just forces him to move his, his hand. Ow, and he's got to put his hand on the fire. He's got to go to the hospital, right? They both know the same thing. In their mind, it's the same. And they both, if you ask them, is fire hot? Yes, yes, it's hot, hot. One of them really knows it. He shudders by the thought of fire. He sees someone else from the fire. He says, oh, it's hot, careful, right? His life is changed by that idea. When we talk about faith, yes, we could debate and we could talk polemics and we could argue and bring proofs and analyze. That's not what the Torah wants of us. Yes, that's important. You have to know how to debate. You have to know how to, uh, uh, as the Talmud, as the Mishnah says, you have to know how to give a response to the heretic. Of course that's important. But for us, this is advanced core beliefs. Right? We're not going to settle by saying, ah, uh, prove it to me. Let's have it written down in a document. Let, let's put it in a spreadsheet. Let's prove it in a spreadsheet. That's not what we want. We want Emunah. We want Emunah to be alive, to be real. We want that when we go to pray, we really feel like we're talking to a power. No? I mean, hopefully we're talking to the power. I remember how there was a guy in Yeshiva. Uh, when I was uh, 12, uh, 13, so I went to Yeshiva for the first time. High school. Yeshiva high school. And there was a gentleman, an older boy, I think he was in 11th grade or whatever, or maybe even 12th grade. And I remember before we prayed, collectively as in the Yeshiva, he puts on a tie, which is a very bizarre thing for a high school boy in the Yeshiva high school to do, right? And I once went over to him and says, uh, why are you putting on a tie? So he responded to me very plainly. If you were talking to the president, would you wear a tie? And it's such good criticism for us. Do we really feel like we're talking to God when we pray? Do we? Re- yeah, well, yeah. What's prayer? Talking to God. Well, look, it says in the book, Baruch Atah Hashem. I'm talking to God. Baruch Atah. I'm saying Atah means you. If you count all the words in the Amidah, in the Amidah prayer, there's one word that we say more than any other word. That's the word ata, you. We say 34 times. We talk to God by calling him you. That's what prayer is. But do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? Well, let's see. How are our actions different? That's what we want. And how do we get there? I think it's something really cool. Mitzvahs. All the mitzvahs we talk about. So we said, hey, the first two mitzvahs at Mount Sinai, that's really the goal. <coughs> right? 
Having faith, that's the goal. Having emunah. All the mitzvahs are designed to bridge the gap between our theoretical and practical faith. That's what a mitzvah is. That's the goal of the mitzvah. When you walk into the room, you see a mezuzah. What does that do? That's a little signpost in your life, in the corner of your eye, in the peripheral vision of your mind. You see a sign that testifies that God is real. He took us out of Egypt. Why do we focus on that? My brother mentioned that earlier. Why do we focus on took us out of Egypt? Because that's practical. We were slaves, and then, miraculously, we're not slaves anymore. That's not the God of the spreadsheet. That's not the God of, uh, yeah, well, it's proven, and I gave you definitions. That's, no, that is a God that's involved in our lives in a real way. That's a real power. That's why we hearken back to the God that took us out of Egypt. Because that is the God. That, that's the real faith. That's the emunah. And every mission we do, every time we pray, we are trying to narrow the divide between our mind and our heart. The tefillin on our head, the tefillin near our heart, bridge the gap. That's what mitzvahs are about. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you something really cool. If you count the mitzvahs, let's count all the mitzvahs in the Torah that are designed to make us believe in God in our mind, you'll have very, very few. There's one mitzvah to have um, to believe in God. One mitzvah that God is one, Hashem Echad. You have obviously the negative mitzvahs of, of idolatry, but you don't really have many theoretical, intellectual mitzvahs. And then you have hundreds upon hundreds of mitzvahs that are practical, that are behavioral. And the idea is like this. Yes, we could sit down and we could prove, as we indeed will, um, practical faith. It's not hard to prove. Most of the people in the world have that. That's not necessarily... Uh, uh, you don't have to be Jewish for that. You don't have to be Jewish. Most people in the world, most people in the world, in the, you know, in the world today, believe that at least mostly to, you know, to the, to a rough, uh, a rough um, version of how we describe God. You don't need to be Jewish for that. When we talk about faith as Jews, we're not talking about believing in your mind. We're talking about believing in your heart and be, in your behavior. Can give some cool example in here? Story time. Sixty-six of the Common Era is a very important date in Jewish history because that was when the Great Revolt happened. We know the Jews spent several hundred years under Roman uh, occupation. Rome enters Israel. Pompey comes into Israel in the year 63 before the Common Era, and then they dominate the rest of the world, essentially, till, till the 4th century when the Byzantines rise. So by the year 66, the Jews in Israel revolt. Remember, the temple's destroyed in the year 70. Uh, and as we know, the Jews revolted against the, the Romans more than any other people. Uh, we know in the year 132, Bar Kokhba had a successful revolt where they actually kicked all the Romans out of Israel and had three years of sovereignty over the land. And they were so successful, they minted coins, and in fact, the coins that we have today in Israel are replicas of the coins that they found and they found thousands of them. <laughs> replicas of the coins that they found from the times of Bar Kokhba, 132 to 135. So, 
In the year 66, and by the way, we have a history element to this course, so we're going to do this in more, like in great, great detail. Everything, fat, fat, you know, just amazing stories. But uh, 66, the Jews' revolt, it's called the Great Revolt, and that began a four-year battle that culminated in the siege of Jerusalem, of course, and the destruction of the temple, and in the year uh, uh, 73, that we know famously, the battle at Masada, which was the last stronghold of the rebellion. Uh, either way, uh, at the, when they finally, when they finally uh, put a, laid a siege on Jerusalem in the year 69, uh, it was a terrible uh, conditions in, 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 uh, in, in, um, in Jerusalem. Uh, there's lots of reasons for it. Basically, they had 21 years supply of food, and they had a natural water uh, uh, sources. They had, uh, Jerusalem, as member, is very defensible because it has... Valleys on all, almost, all three, three out of four sides, right, besides for the north, which, by the way, why all the times Jerusalem is breaches from the north. Uh, they had 21 years uh, stockpiled of, of wood, of firewood. Right. Problem is that there were different elements, warring elements in the city, and uh, there were some saboteurs that actually burned down all the uh, grain reserves and all the wood reserves and People were starving, and hundreds of people died of starvation. And those that ventured out of, out of the city were brutally and mercilessly uh, 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 killed uh, on uh, uh, on crosses. Right? We know they were crucified, which is a really bad way to go. And at at that time, the leader of the siege is a fellow named Vespasian, right? Vespasian, uh, and he ultimately became the emperor, as we'll see. In the, year, in the year 69, there were four emperors. They all kept on dying one after another. So he's the leader of the siege, and the leader of the Jewish people is a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And the story goes, the Talmud recounts the story, that uh, he smuggles his way out to negotiate with uh, Vespasian, and he meets Vespasian and says, Blessing unto you, O emperor. And the guy says to him, Listen, and Vespasian tells Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, you, I'm going to kill you. Why? Because first of all, I'm not an emperor. The emperor is still alive in Rome. Number one. Number two, why didn't you come to me till now? So he says, well, I couldn't come to me till now, but you should know you will be the emperor. Why? Why are you going to be the emperor? How do I know that you're going to be the emperor? So he says to him, because there is a verse that says that the temple will fall with the mighty. Well, actually, what it says is Lebanon will fall with the mighty. And Lebanon is always a reference for the temple. And the mighty is a reference for a king. Thus, says Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I know that you're a king because the verse tells me that Lebanon will fall with the mighty and that's a reference to the temple being folded with the king. Now, what does that have to do with faith? Right? Well, so the ultimate, let me give the quick postscript of the story. Uh, as they're having a discussion, a messenger comes from Rome that the senators have elected the, the, the emperor died, you're the new emperor. So he tells them, oh my, he, you know, he freaks out, and he tells them, oh no, oh my goodness, I'm going to grant you three wishes, and he asked, he asked to spare the family of Rabbi Gamliel, to uh, spare Yavne, the, the city of scholars, and to find a remedy, a health remedy for Rabbi Tzadok. Those are the three requests. Even though he essentially should have asked to spare Jerusalem, he didn't ask for that. We, we will discuss it at great length in when we talk about history. Either way, this is a demonstration of faith. Imagine I told you, 
you're going to have a discussion with the emperor that with the flick of his finger, he could have you executed. You walk in, and he's the general at that time. You walk in, and in your head, you know there's a verse somewhere in scripture that says, Lebanon will fall on the hands of the mighty. And you know that the, what the Torah says is absolutely true. You have no doubts about that. It's more real than any other reality that you encounter. True faith, as you say, it's when it's real. When talking to God is a bigger deal than talking to the president. Let me finish this point. Right? When you have that attitude, and the Torah is, is more real than what you see. So you see a general, but is he really a general? No, in your head, what's your reality? Your reality is, hey, the Torah says about this guy, he's a king. So I'm calling him king because that's what he is. That's more his, in my, my reality, Rabbi Yochum said, my reality is governed by what the Torah says. That's a demonstration of faith where there's absolutely right, no, uh, no doubts about it. The Torah says something, that's what it is. And you see something different, doesn't matter. What governs your reality? Dave. So is all prophecy faith? Everything's faith. We'll talk about this more. Everything's faith. Because wasn't he doing prophecy? Well, he wasn't prophecy. He wasn't a prophet. No, but he was saying something that he Well, knew. no, he was just telling, he was, he was just reflecting upon a verse that he, that he had studied. Mm-hmm. He, wasn't, he, he wasn't prophesizing. It was true because it was true. But it was true because that was his reality. Okay. Give me another example. We read a few weeks ago about, the, about Noah. So what does it say about Noah? So the verse says, um, there's a quote here. The verse says that Noah came into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Says the Talmud, Noah is a man of weak faith. Now remember, Noah, according to tradition, spent 120 years building an ark. God tells you, hey, I'm destroying the world. You know, build an ark. And you invest 120 years of your life to build the ark. That sounds like faith, right? No, don't you think? Yet, because of this verse, right, Noah came into the ark because of the waters, says the Torah, he's got weak and limited faith. He's the small ones of, of, of Amuna, of faith. Now, why would that be so? The answer is like this. God tells him, go into the ark. Noah goes outside and says, hey, 72 degrees, clear skies, and absolutely no forecast of rain. So what does Noah do? He stays outside. And what happens? He waits. And starts trickling and starts raining. And once it starts flooding, then he goes into the ark. Noah's faith was lacking because his reality, what he considered to be immutable and true, was governed more by what he saw than by what God, than by what God told him. If Noah was a man of true and complete emunah, how would he behave? God says, go in. Well, it's sunny outside. doesn't matter. I'm in. Right? Noah's got minor faith because 
he, you know, he waits till the water come. Why would you wait till the water come? Because the water's more real than what God says. Got low, limited faith. Now remember, we're talking about Noah. Noah invested a huge amount of his life, you know, following what God told him. Clearly, he did. He believed in God. There was no problem in his head. If you were to poll him and say, "Hey, are you an atheist, or are you a, a man of faith?" Of course, he would say he's a man of faith. That's obvious. That's axiomatic. We don't need to say that. Clearly, he's behaving in a way like the Torah calls him a tzaddik, a righteous person. He obviously had faith. But the Torah still criticizes him because there was some gap between what he perceived right in this physical world as his reality versus what God had actually said. Because he actually hesitated a little bit to wait till the actual the water compelled him uh, to to go into the um, to go into the um, in, into the ark. So I, I think that this discussion, just this idea, it should really change our perspectives on faith. To begin with, you know, uh, typically we think of faith as either a certain feeling or a certain association of a community uh, or a certain intellectual premise or precept that we accept, or we don't accept, or we debate. This is an entirely different world. This is a life governed by realities that we cannot see. We cannot, we, it means we have a, a hard time perceiving. Well, we have the Torah, but does the Torah govern our reality? If it does, yeah, then, that, then we have faith. If it doesn't, if this table is more real in my head than Mount Sinai experience was, well, then there's something to work on in my faith. Which, by the way, this particular point shows us how faith is uh, a lifelong work. Our entire life is the process of transforming our reality from being merely what the physical world tells us is true, or we could see, encounter in physical senses, to the idea of God, which we, we cannot see. Remember, God, one of the definitions the Talmud says about God is ro'eh ve'ino nir'ah. He sees, cannot be seen. He sees, but cannot be seen. Thus, we have to transform our reality from what we can see to what we cannot see. And that's why it's so difficult. Because in our heads, the way we start, our default status is what you see is real, what you don't see is not real. If I can't see it, can't prove it, right? That's what we're, that's what we're taught. And God, we cannot see. No way. Okay, so there's obviously room for us to transform ourselves. So we can't walk around and say, hey, we're men of faith. Yes, it's still true, but in the, the early parts of faith, the parts of faith that we share with everyone, really, almost everyone in the world, our emunah is judged not by what we believe in our head, but how we behave. And the mitzvahs are going to help us along, along the way. Like this. Take this another, uh, a level deeper here. To the degree of realness that we accord to God, that's the degree of realness that he is going to treat us with. If I ask anyone, I poll anyone in the room, and I ask the question, do you believe in God? Yes. I will say yes. Do you believe he has all the power? Yes, of course. Do you believe that he's, you know, everything that we said, all the definitions that we said, everyone would say yes. You might argue a little bit, but for the most part, right? Okay. 
How much do we really believe? How real is this in our lives? Or is it just an idea that, yes, we hold to be true theoretically, but not practically? That question of how real our association of God is, that's going to determine how real He is with us. So you want to talk, you want to call out to God, you want to pray to God. He, he, he should respond to you, right? To the degree with which you actually are calling out to him, how real and sincere and genuine you're crying out to God is, that's the degree with which he'll respond in kind. You know, one of the definitions, or well, one of the ways we describe God is God's our billionaire dad. God has all the money, He's got all the assets. He's a billionaire. And he's our dad. He loves us. We're sitting pretty. Okay, let me paint you. Oh, fantastic. Let me paint you a picture. Imagine your dad is a billionaire. He's a billionaire. Multi-billionaire. $10 billion, $10 billion plus. You grew up in a mansion. Or one of seven mansions. Everything at your back, back and call, right? One night you go to sleep. Before you go to sleep, you go to the pantry. You want to see what's tomorrow's breakfast. You open up the pantry door, and you look, and it's all empty. It's empty. You go to the fridge, you open the fridge, and there's no food there. Nothing. In the freezer, there's just ice cubes, nothing else. No food. You go to all the fridges in the house, there's no food. And then the whole night, you're terrified that you're not going to have breakfast tomorrow. Now, does that seem realistic? Why not? Because you say, hey, we're billionaires. I can send, we'll have food, food will be taken care of. I don't have to worry about it. I'm, I'm, I'm assured that tomorrow morning I'll have delicious breakfast. Right? Because I'm the son of a billionaire. The fact there's no food in the pantry, so what? Okay, everyone agrees. Now, let's take this to our life. We're the son of a billionaire. We're, we're the sons of God. God loves us. And you go to your bank account, and you look at it, and it's empty. You go to your pantry, and it's empty. You, you're full today. The pantry's empty. You have enough food for today, but you know that you're on your last meal. You have $7 in your pocket, and how are you going to feed your kids? And we go to sleep, and we're terrified. How am I going to feed my kids breakfast? If those two scenarios do not, are, do not parallel, parallel each other, there's something lacking in our faith. If we really believe we're the sons of billionaires, how can we ever have any worry in the world? How can we worry that we, what we're going to feed our kids? We, 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 our dad's a billionaire. So the parents are so what? So what? God can't find a way to circumnavigate us some food tomorrow? Our billionaire dad can. Why can't God? Because we don't really believe it. If someone really did believe that their dad was a billionaire, then they really wouldn't have to worry when the pantry is empty. But because we don't really believe it, even though maybe we theoretically believe it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really affect us, we still would be worried. Okay, we have something to worry about. Only because we're worried do we have something to worry about. If we truly had the faith, now obviously I'm talking about a very high levels of faith, of course, but if we'd had that faith that God was a billionaire, 
that God would really be like a billionaire dad. We wouldn't have to worry about breakfast tomorrow morning. Talmud says, Mi sheyesh lo pas besalo. I don't see any Hebrew speakers here. I'll just say it in English. So the Talmud in Sota. Someone who has bread in his basket today and he says, what am I going to eat tomorrow? That's a person who's lacking in faith. You know why? He doesn't really believe the God dad's a billionaire. You don't really believe it. If he did, you would, what would you worry? Our life is the process. Right? Our responsibilities in faith is the process of changing ourselves from theoretically knowing dad's a billionaire to actually living like that. And you know what, what, what awaits us at this end? That, dad actually, that God actually treats us like a dad who's a billionaire. And we actually can not worry because we don't have to worry because dad's a billionaire. Dad really is a billionaire. Okay, we have some crazy stories here. Go ahead. Yeah, I was reading an, an article that, that the, there, there were Hasidim who, when they were being marched into the gas chambers, you know, during World War II, were singing because they knew what was coming, that the world to come was coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's easier to die with faith than to live with faith, in a weird way. It's a lot easier to jump into the gas chambers or the fire than it is to walk slowly 80 years of faith, yeah. grinding every day. But you're right. It's true. It's true that it's, it's uh, emblematic of the Jewish people is this idea of dying, Al-Kadosh Hashem, dying for God and being almost alive. Remember Rabbi Tiva. What happens to Rabbi Tiva? He's being killed in a terrible, horrible way, and he's so excited because finally he can fulfill this wonderful mitzvah of dying for God's sake. Crazy, crazy stuff. But that is the Jewish attitude and has been the Jewish attitude since the times of, Adam, uh, of, of Abraham. Crazy stories here in the Talmud. So first of all, I'll tell you guys quickly, the Talmud actually says this point. It says it in a few different ways. It says, um, used to be that people did not go to the doctor. They didn't go to the doctor. Why? Why do you need to go to the doctor? Your dad's more skilled than any physician. Your dad... Obviously, with a capital D, <laughs> referring to God, right? 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 Of course. So why didn't you go to the doctor? Oh, you need to go to the doctor because you think you need to go to the doctor. If we really had that faith that we knew that the Almighty is taking care of us, really, well, then we wouldn't need to go to the doctor. But unfortunately, and this is right in Talmud times, this is a, that's a your skepticism that I'm getting from you, Dave. I'll get your skepticism in a second. In the times of the Talmud, it says already, at that time already, thousands of years ago, when the Jews were at a much higher spiritual level than we are today, already then it says that people did go to the doctor, and they needed to go to the doctor because they thought they needed to go to the doctor. If you think that you need to go to the doctor, you're not relying on God, so you actually do need to go to the doctor. So you're right. You're skeptic because, and, and, and this is not really for us. I'm trying to show the edge, kind of the, the edge of what faith actually can be. I don't expect anyone here to, uh, to not call the ambulance, God forbid, if they need to, or not go to the doctor when they feel ill. God put a doctor there for a reason. That's true. That's true. Uh, but, but, it, but it does talk about this, this idea. This, but this idea is mentioned that it's a th- maybe it's theoretical for us. But if we truly had the faith, we wouldn't need it. Now, of course, this idea, this realm of faith is beyond us. I agree. I agree to your skepticism, Dave. 
I agree. It's beyond us. But I'm just trying to show an insight, an idea of what faith can be. But there's obviously millions of levels along the way. Sorry? Well, then we could all go to Benny Hinn and be healed. To who? <laughs> the guy that faith heals. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, then we're relying on him. We don't need anyone. Rely on God. Well, that's like the story. This, there's a flood, and this guy's trapped on the roof. And a guy in a rowboat comes by, and he says to save him. He says, no, no, I know God's going to save him. Keep mm-hmm. on going. Mm-hmm. Somebody else comes by in a bigger boat. He says, no, nope, I don't need you. God's going to save him. So eventually he drowns. And he goes up and he sees God. He says, God, I thought you were going to save him. Why do you think I said those guys in the boats? Yeah, so, so, but that's a little bit, a slightly different, because th- that's t- talking about the methods that God's going to use to extract us. It's possible the methods will be via some other person, of course. But the reliance on God, that's important. The fact that you have, that God sends you something, you've got to take, you take the offer. You know what I'm saying? Okay, let me tell you this. This once, this one, one more discussion because I, I don't want to go over time because I, uh, you know, it's, I don't want to go too over time, too much over time here. Because this, this point is enough. You know, we need a few weeks to digest this point. Um, the Talmud has a discussion in the Book of Brachos on page thirty-five. The discussion is about livelihood. What do Jews do? Do we need to work or do we rely on God? Remember, Dad's a billionaire. We don't go work as an accountant, grinding it, right? Dad, Dad really wasn't, you know. Stam has a whole discussion about this. And the opinion number one says, Ve'asafta de'ganecha. We say in the, uh, in the Shema prayer, it's the second chapter of Shema, that we have to go and collect our grains. Well, what does that mean? You've got to work. Well, you've got you to plant at the right time. You've got to, you know, you've got to plow and plant and, and harvest and winnow and all. Th- you've got to work, right? Says one opinion. Other people says, hey, what's going to happen? The guy's going to plant, and then he's going to harvest, and then he's going to reap, and then he's going to grind. He'll be busy the whole year. When is he ever going to study Torah? So rather, don't worry about it. God will take care of you. Your dad's a billionaire. And that's the opinion of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Remember that name. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, listen, who needs to work? Why do we work? Dad's a billionaire. I thought it was a whole discussion back and forth, and ultimately it says like this. Listen to this answer, guys. Right. One opinion, Rabbi Ishmael says, you got to work. Other opinion says, no, what are you rely on God. And the Gemara concludes, what's the halacha? Who, who's right and who's wrong? The conclusion is as follows. Many people tried to do, like Rabbi Ishmael, to work. You know what? And it worked for them. Some people try, and many people tried to do, like Rabbi Shimon, don't work, rely on God, and it didn't work for them. That's a very bizarre conclusion. It's, it's a conclusion based upon evidence, based upon data, right? Based upon, you know, experimentation. What it's telling us is this point. Indeed, if someone really relies on God, that's a billionaire, you could actually be like Rabbi Shimon and it works. But most people that try it didn't work for them because they don't really believe it. So those people actually didn't work. And therefore, most people that tried like Rabbi Ishmael they tried, and what does that mean? They actually worked, and it worked for them because we don't have that faith. And remember, this is going back thousands of years. Thousands of years ago, there were people that were obviously advocating like we're talking about now, Rabbi Shimon, and they said, well, who needs to work? Your dad's a billionaire. And then there were uh, those on the other side of the argument that said, no, you got to work because, yes, we don't quite have that level of faith. And the Talmud concludes 
that the evidence shows, the data shows, that many people tried to rely on God the billionaire, but they didn't really have that faith, and therefore it didn't work for most of them. Now there's a postscript. Okay? There's a story about Rabbi Shimon himself, where he castigated the Roman authorities. And the Romans started chasing him down. They said, we want to kill him. And he spent, him and his son, Rabbi Eliezer, they spent 12 years in a cave. And they ran to the cave to hide from the authorities. And what did they do? You're in a cave in the middle of nowhere. The next morning they wake up and there is a river, a stream, a stream of water, and a carob tree sprouted overnight. And for 12 years, they ate the caribs, they drained the water, and they lived in the cave and studied. And by the way, traditionally, during those 12 years is when Rabbi Shumrechai, the traditional author of the Zohar, that's when they came up with the Zohar. Thus, Rabbi Shimon himself, he was telling people, you can rely on God, he's a billionaire. You don't have to worry about anything. And you know what? He actually lived by that. So what happens? He's stuck in the cave. Well, his dad really is a billionaire. Delivers him the food in the morning, no problem. Because he really believed, therefore, God really treated him like a son of a billionaire. And you know what? He woke up and he, he, and he didn't have a dad. He didn't go to sleep worried. What are you going to do? What are you going to eat? He had no worries. Because he had no worries and he treated God like a billionaire dad, right? he was treated in kind. And one more cool story. This one's from Rabbi Israel Salanter. Uh, much more modern, 1817 to 1883. The most significant rabbinical figure of the 19th century. Well, along with others, but arguably. And someone once said to him, listen, I am really poor, and, um, and there's a lottery with a huge jackpot. I want to know if I have faith that I'll win the lottery, will I win? He says, absolutely. If you have faith that you'll win the lottery, you'll win. So he buys a lottery ticket for a dollar or a ruble or whatever the, uh, or a mark, whatever the denomination of uh, currency was. And there's a week to the jackpot. So Rabbi Santa comes over to him, you know, two days before the jackpot and says to him, you got the winning ticket there, right? Can I buy it off you? Yeah, I want to pay. I'll give you half the jackpot to buy it off you. He says, sure, of course. You, you know, if the, if the jackpot is $142 million, would you sell it for 70 The ticket before the drawing for, that you bought for a dollar, would you sell it for $70 million? Of course you would, right? So he says to him, sure, I'll sell it to you for that. Ah, so you don't believe it's the winning ticket. You don't really believe it, because otherwise, if you really believe that it's $140 million, you wouldn't sell it for 70 Right? So you don't really believe that God will give you, that, that you have the winning ticket. So you won't have the winning ticket. So the idea is like this. Faith is a lot more complex and more real than what we assume. We think faith is an idea, something that, yeah, oh, faith, you know, our hearts and our prayers. Anytime there's anything bad, our hearts and our prayers. Hearts and prayers are never involved with when good things are happening, right? It's not, it, you know, in the secular world out there, our hearts and our, our thoughts and our prayers, sorry, right? Any, right the guy, the, the, the football players being wheeled off the, what's called? Thoughts and the prayers. Suddenly everyone goes through, like, related faith, right? That's not real faith. 
I thought that Perez with the with the the linebacker who you know who did the ferocious tackle but hurt himself. Right, that's not faith. Right, and even more advanced theoretical faith. That's not really faith. When we talk about emuna, it's we're talking about living a life that is dominated by a certain reality. And that means that you really live, that you're, you really know that your dad's a billionaire. And obviously, there's a huge gap, a huge chasm between those two. Our goal with the mitzvahs and with the study and with the prayer and with everything is to inch closer and closer and closer and closer towards that reality. You know, some people may say, hey, listen, I'm, you know, 42 years old, and I know I need X amount of dollars to get to retirement. I need to retire with exactly, I don't know, $2,583,000 in my IRA, plus my, you know, in case I live to 100, how much I need for every day, and I have it all planned out. Yeah. And I always say, listen, if I have enough money for a year of in, spend, in savings, I, I, I can rely on God from then on, you know. So I think there's, there's a difference between not having food tomorrow and not having food in 18 years. You know, if someone is really nervous of how are they going to feed themselves in 18 years from now, they really need to work on faith even today. You know, even by our standards. If someone's, you know, and that's the goal. And perhaps if we're concerned about what's going to be in the future, right, that's a normal concern that humans have, our growth in faith would slowly, obviously, would allow us to be more and more comfortable the less and less and less we have in the bank or the less proverbial bread we have in our basket. Uh, And what's nice about that is is that this totally is going to dominate our relationship with God. Remember, we treat God and He treats us back in kind. So if we want to have a deeper relationship with God, a more intimate relationship with God, a relationship where God responds to our prayers in a more real way, like a child. When your child calls you up and says, I need help, what happens? You get galvanized. If your child texts you in the middle of the night, I need help, just those words, you will go absolutely insane, right? Right? Which parent won't? That's how parents react. And we call God and say, God, I need help. And we get no help. Well, what's the deal? We get no help. The answer is, the more we treat God as our billionaire dad, the more he treats us as our bratty child, as his bratty child. So when we want, when we treat God in a real sense, then our proverbial, I need help text, our prayer where we really are are in a bind, we need help from God, he'll actually respond, you know, in a more, in a a way that's more uh, appropriate for a child in distress. So that's the benefit of, of, of this growth in faith. And, and this is a lifelong process. So, so that's that, guys. If, if we had any mistaken notions about what faith is, you know, uh, I think they have been sufficiently uh, um, debunked. Uh, and we know that faith is not just this one time. You go, you, go, you go to a seminar and it's proved or you have an experience and you have evidence and you had a miracle in your life. You have faith. It's a whole lifelong journey. And we have the mitzvahs and the Torah as tools to help us along that path. Thanks a lot, guys. See you guys next week. Any questions? We're good.